Words to get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about difficult people, tough situations, and challenging conversations. I've been thinking about how frustrating it can be to try and negotiate with someone when you disagree on just about everything, and how amazing it can feel when you discover some common ground. I've been thinking about just how much time we spend each day negotiating without even realizing it, and that it might make quite a bit of sense to improve our skills. My guest today is Joshua Weiss, Ph.D. Dr. Weiss is the co-founder with William Urry of the Global Negotiation Initiative at Harvard University and a senior fellow at the Harvard Negotiation Project. He's also the director and creator of the Master of Science degree in Leadership and Negotiation at Bay Path University. He received his Ph.D. from the Institute for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University. Welcome, Joshua, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. You're welcome, Ellie. Thanks so much for having me. So you've got your BA degree in history, and I was thinking and wondering if you have a new perspective on history now that you're an expert in conflict resolution, and if you ponder how often history's conflicts were exacerbated because of lack of talented and committed negotiators. Well, uh, it's an, that is an interesting question, and I think that history, you know, part of history is what we focus on, and we tend to focus on a lot of um, wars and other kinds of things. Um, and as a result, conflict is, is part of the landscape. The question, of course, is how do we address those things? And sometimes it feels a little bit like human beings are slow to learn um, how to try to effectively deal with conflict. Because in the end, even when there's a war, there's still a negotiation uh, to figure out where we go now and uh, what do we do. Uh, and so eventually people end up sitting down with each other and trying to talk things through. Um, my preference, of course, would be that we do that before lots of innocent lives are lost. Um, but as I said, sometimes I feel like our species is a little slow um, to come to that realization. You are slow on the uptake, and you're making me think about something that I hadn't thought about before, is definitely when studying history, we do focus on the conflicts. Um, and, and maybe that's parallel a little bit to how our brains are wired as far as we're supposed to pay more attention to things that didn't work and that, that caused a negative impact so we don't repeat them again. And yet, somehow with history, we, we have our focus on those conflicts, but we, we seem to be repeating quite a few. Yeah, and, and actually the reality is that history is littered with negotiation uh, and efforts to negotiate. I mean, you know, the, the constitutional convention was a negotiation. <laughs> um, and so th there's actually quite a few endeavors that, you know, you can focus on and see a whole different part of history. And um, so for me, and that's something that I often say to my kids, you know, who sometimes they're, they're not as um, enthusiastic about history because history is taught as dates and and times and, you know, instances and not stories. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because like many people, we were lucky enough to go see Hamilton. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah. And frankly, to me, that's the way you should teach history uh, because it's, it's, history is, is, is about stories and stories are about human beings. And it's how we share the do's and don'ts of our world. And um, and so I think that what we choose to share with people is where people focus their attention. And so I, you know, have actually been working a little bit with a colleague of mine who's a writer um, to create a, a series um, that would actually be sort of a historical um, for sort of high school age kids focused on negotiation and efforts at resolving conflict over the years as opposed to all of these other things. And in reference to Hamilton, I'm, I'm thinking that my son knew some data just from hearing the songs. We hadn't even seen the performance. And that the other element that comes from teaching in that way is that then the relevance to current day and to the individual's lives is clear, right? So you're going to retain that information much more than you would have otherwise. We do a really good job at making things boring, and you wonder why. Like, who does that benefit? Maybe just I think the system. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, to me, learning and the part of the reason that I teach and love teaching is because learning is a challenge to figure out how do I convey this to somebody, but get it to stick um, and get them to really remember it. And, 
And I think, you know, the, the brilliance of Hamilton is that when people leave there, they know the life story of Alexander Hamilton. And that's not going to go anywhere because it's not only interesting, but it's engaging, it's different, it's creative. And, and that's actually really how we need to be talking about um, negotiation as well. I mean, I, I was once interviewed for a podcast um, and the title of the podcast was called Peace is Sexy. And the whole idea was that we have to make things interesting, relevant, um, and and captivating for folks um, so that they will want to learn these things. Because like I said, I, I find history fascinating because to me, history is all about stories and about the trials and tribulations that people went through. And, and I think that's what makes all of this so fascinating if we can get our head out of, sometimes out of the, the traditional ways in which you're supposed to do things and to try things a little differently. And that the individuals are multifaceted. I know you leave Hamilton knowing the ins and out of Hamilton, but you also have a different perspective, I think, on Jefferson. It makes you think, huh, you know, you want to go out, I think, the average person and research a little. Is, is that the Hamilton, is that the Jefferson that, you know, I have in, in my mind? And, you know, are, is there more to it than I thought originally? which is the key, yeah. right, for learning. Yeah, and I think also humanizing this stuff. You know, when we talk about, sometimes when we talk about the Founding Fathers is when I was a kid, which was a long time ago, you know, my learning of the Founding Fathers was an idealistic learning. It wasn't a human learning. It wasn't, these guys had their foibles and their warts and their challenges. And when we learn that, we realize that you can still do great things even if you have, um some things that you're working with and some challenges that you're dealing with, right? So I think telling history in a way that's accurate and that's genuine and that's interesting is really in our interest to do. And I think it would really engage um, young young people in wanting to know more about history. I hate hearing when young people say, oh, history is so boring. I'm uh. like, that's you're not. It, it breaks your heart, right? You're like, yeah, it, it no, does. no, it's not. And, and you're living history right now. And to right. also think about each of the individuals as complex people within their environments, their particular environments and their t- particular circumstance and perspectives, which I think history often fails to do as well. Okay, right. so so that's also all relevant when it comes to negotiating, right? Who mm-hmm. the individuals are that you're negotiating with, what are the circumstances, what are their foibles, what are their passions? Um, and we negotiate from the time pretty much we start our first words. And I was thinking about this today too, which mm. surprised me that I hadn't thought about it before, that we're negotiating with ourselves all day long. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether we're going to eat something or do something or say something. And so it's something that we need to be skilled at, and yet we are also not taught this um, typically in school or, or in our environment. So, what are the necessary skills to be a successful negotiator? Well, let me just say that I completely agree with your frame. You know, one of the challenges with negotiation is that people have a very narrow view of it. You know, they'll think about it when it comes to contracts or a salary, but they don't realize that they're doing this every day, all day with their spouses and their kids and with credit card companies and with their boss or coworkers or people they're overseeing or clients, you know, so it goes on and on and on. And and the reality is it's a life skill. And I, I share your sort of amazement that we don't learn this. It's so fundamental to our everyday existence that it's it's still a bit stunning to me that this is not a core part of our curriculum. Um, so that said, um, you know, one of the things that I try to convey to my students and others that I work with is that negotiation, to be an effective negotiator, first of all, it's not a, it's not a destination, it's a journey. Um, and it's really important that you see it that way because you're constantly learning from your negotiation processes. Um, you know, I've been doing this a long time and there's still times where things don't go exactly as I imagined or hoped or whatever. And I've got to look back and think what happened here and why. Um, so I think the first thing is to realize that this is not easy, uh, especially because in any negotiation, you know, we don't have control over everything. Uh, and that lack of control for a lot of people is very discomforting. A lot of folks want to control their, or do the best they can to control their world and their environment. And because negotiation is an interdependent process, you can't do that. You have to sort of operate in a bit of a sea of uncertainty um, and chaos, and chaos in a good way, you know, sort of 
the ability to adapt is a really critical element for any negotiator because you can't walk into a negotiation with a plan um, because the other side is not reading your playbook. So it doesn't work. So there's a wonderful quote that I often like to share from President Eisenhower who says that plans are useless, but planning is everything. And of course, he was talking about war. But from a negotiation point of view, that's what's critical is that you go through sort of a contingency planning uh, way of thinking about what you're doing. And, you know, I often will share with folks that it's a bit like playing chess. You know, you have to think um, a couple of steps ahead, but you also have to think that there are multiple roads to try to get the other person's uh, king, if you will, right? But that, that if you go into a negotiation with one path charted out and that path is blocked or you don't, you know, you, you don't find much success, a lot of people kind of throw their hands up and say, well, I tried to negotiate and it didn't work. And you actually didn't because negotiation is all about persistence and resilience. And you go down a road and if it's blocked, you try another road. And if that's blocked, you think differently and creatively. So I, I, I'm highlighting a few skills as I go here. But the other thing that I would say to your point about negotiating with yourself, what I uh, often share with folks is that you know, half of your challenges when it comes to negotiation are out there. The people you deal with, the dynamics, whether it's culture, gender, race, you know, time, pressure, things like that. But the other half are in you. And, you know, negotiation is inherently a deeply psychological process. And if you're not willing to think about the things that um, are challenging for you or difficult for you and where your strengths lie, you're not going to be a good negotiator. You'll never really achieve your potential because so much of negotiation rests in our minds. And my colleague, William Urey, who you mentioned, who I uh, run the project at Harvard with, you know, he was one of the authors of a book called Getting to Yes, which was a foundational work in the field. Uh, a few years ago, he wrote a book, another book, one of many that he's written, called Getting to Yes with Yourself. And the essence of the book is basically that sometimes the hardest negotiators that you're dealing with is in the mirror. And if you don't address that, if you don't learn ways of trying to manage yourself and think about yourself, then you'll never really become a, a, an excellent negotiator. Right, you've got to go in knowing where your hot spots are, right? Where are my buttons? And recognizing yeah. where, when they're being pushed and then not reacting. And, and part of that is it's a dynamic process, right? And you're going to have to pivot. You know, you mentioned, you know, you're going to have to have resilience because you're going to have to pivot. Um, mm -hmm. Is there a personality uh, who tends to make a better negotiator? Or is it something that it really is really a skill that that everyone can learn? Just come into my program, for example, like we there's no cookie cutter model for being an effective leader or negotiator. I, I firmly believe that. Um, so when people come into the program, we look at where they are, what they bring to the table. But I also, I wouldn't be teaching this if I didn't believe that people could learn to improve and that everyone has a ceiling where they can get better when it comes to, to negotiation. Um, is there a personality? I, no, not really. Um, I mean, I think there are certain traits or elements that that are incredibly helpful, as I mentioned, you know, sort of, but, but they're learned, you know, persistence and resilience, you're not born with persistence, you learn it. Uh, and, and resilience, if you get knocked down, you know, what do you do? Do you get up or do you stay down? Um, I, I would say that there are a couple that, that I think are not focused on nearly enough. You know, when people think about effective negotiators or things along those lines, they tend to think about, you know, smooth talkers or communicators in a certain manner. But, for me, um, the most patient people are actually very effective negotiators because they're not in a hurry. And they're, and usually people who are patient are also willing to listen. And when, you know, information is the currency of negotiation. The more you have, the better off you are. So if you ask good questions and listen and you're not in a hurry to get somewhere, um, you can actually uh, be incredibly successful in negotiation. Um, and it's a little bit counter to what people tend to think. Um, but you know, the reality is that the other person is somebody you have to find a way to work with because that's what negotiation is all about. And, um, you have to be very clear about what it is you're trying to achieve, what your objective is. But 
similarly, you also have to be attuned to the other person because they're the, the individual between what it is that you want and whether you get there or not. And, and so you have to see the other side. And I think this is also a mistake that a lot of people make, especially when you're negotiating with same folks over and over again, is that you really need to see the other person as, as a problem solver, as your problem solving partner. There are issues in front of you that are the problem. The other person isn't the problem. It's the issue that you may have a challenge about, that you may have a disagreement about, um, that you have to work with. And even difficult people, you know, we, as you know, uh, um, because you live in life, <laughs> there are difficult people out there. Um, and you're still going to have to negotiate with them and figure out a way to get where you want to go. And there, you know, we have some techniques for trying to do that, like listening through the criticism for what are they really trying to get at. Um, and, um, and, and by doing some of those things, you also show the other side that you're sort of in con control of yourself and your ability. And a lot of times the other negotiator will be looking for this person really have the ability to do this. Are they, you know, do they seem confident or do they seem like somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about and maybe somebody I can manipulate? which some people, you know, will use that strategy. Um, you know, I try to emphasize to folks that especially when you're going to be negotiating with people over and over again, which is really in life, when we think about our work life in particular, or our home life, you know, we, we negotiate a lot with the same people. And so you've got to be very careful how you carry yourself and how you go about your negotiations. I'm thinking about a law professor I had in a litigation class that was talking about utilizing your own authentic style in the courtroom and knowing sort of who you were and what your um, your main sort of skill set was within your authentic personality and then playing to that. So instead of someone in negotiating thinking, oh, I'm going to be the smooth talker if that's not really my personality or I'm going to be overbearing if that's not my personality, you know, what is your personality and how can you utilize that um, to be an effective negotiator? Exactly. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of times I've had people say, well, don't you just fake it till you make it? And I said, no, you don't. Because actually when, when the going gets tough, you know, you can't fake it till you make it. So you have to be yourself. And I would agree with your law professor that in, in the realm of negotiation, you know, um, trying to be something you're not won't work. And that doesn't mean you're vulnerable. You know, again, you know, when you understand yourself and you're centered and you're thoughtful and you've prepared and all of those things, you don't have to worry about uh, some of the tricks and tactics that people use because, they're ineffective, really. So let's talk a little bit about it being a competition versus a collaboration, because uh, you mentioned both of those things. You know, in a way, you're trying to get the king um, or the queen, and, but you're also collaborating. You're, you're cooperative. This is your teammate in, in this venture. So what does that balance look like? Yeah, and, it, and it's a tough one, because I think in most negotiations, you're going to have a little bit of both. Um, where and, and we often talk about that as the, the difference between dividing the pie and, and, and enlarging the pie. So the enlarging the pie idea... Or ordering is, some muffins, right? <laughs> Getting some right. ice cream to go with the pie. Right, exactly. So, so, you know, when it comes to this notion of creativity or collaboration, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for you to um, figure out whether there's a way of um, making the pie bigger, adding value to negotiations before you actually start claiming, you know, your slice of the pie. People value lots of things. And I think one of the significant mistakes that folks make is that they tend to only focus on, say, the dollars and cents if that's part of a negotiation and not on other things that matter. So, I mean, just take a simple example of a, of a job. Uh, that you might be um, applying for and, and negotiating an arrangement around, right? Well, most people will focus a large amount of their attention on the dollars and the cents, the salary that they're going to get paid. And, and um, if you think about why it is that you love a job, um, there are a number of other things that become important, whether it's um, the flex time, whether it's benefits, whether you can telecommute, um, who knows? I mean, you know, is, is the environment at that workplace conducive? Is it collegial? Um, you know, there's a whole host of things that 
we value that we could ask for that never sort of make it onto the radar screen because we're so consumed with our salary and what that might say about us or what's fair and reasonable. So the cooperative piece of this is, and, and I see this a lot in business as well, where you know people will agree to a deal, but they don't actually probe for what's really important or what might have value to a client, for example. So one of the questions that I ask companies when I work with them, I'll often say to them, so you've got this agreement with this company and you've got a, uh, a, a negotiation coming up. Um, have you thought about how you could make this deal better? And most of them say, well, it, it's fine the way it is. You know, we reached this agreement and yada, yada, yada. And they're like, what do you mean by make it better? I said, well, you've got to really probe for what else matters to them. Like, for example, is length of contract something that, you know, if you could get a longer contract, would that be beneficial to you? Um, or payment terms or payment uh, time, things like that. You know, there's a lot of ways in which you can find value if you're looking for it. And that requires um, that cooperative element. And then, you know, eventually, you know, you have to divide things out. Um, and that and that's a little bit where the, the, the competitive element comes in. Um, but it's much easier to do that when you've actually expanded the pie, if you will, and really looked for what people value. Because a lot of times, you know, people will value certain things and they might care deeply about that. For example, um, they might need to have a, a face-saving way to present this to their boss. And if you can do that, that has a tremendous value to them. And for you, well, that doesn't, that doesn't take a whole lot. It doesn't detract at all from what you need from this situation. And so I think that's one of the big failures is that people just don't look for those places of value and think creatively and differently before they start divvying things up. And in the example that you give, maybe also asking the client, why do they want it? Do they want to negotiate? Why do they want this deal? You know, that, that on, on both sides of the aisle, you know, really digging down as to what are your, your interests. So let's talk about that a little bit, approaching it as an interest-based negotiation rather than a position. Um, yep. And and typically, it seems that people go in, they've already surmised what the pie looks like, what piece they want, and then they're set on that. So how do you shift your mindset to approach the negotiation from an interest-based perspective rather than taking a position? Yeah, and, and that may be one of the hardest things that a negotiator has to do is to try to pull somebody away from the positional way of doing things. Because generally speaking, that's what people's default is when it comes to negotiation. Like that's what they think of when they think of negotiation. They think positional. They think high, low. We'll meet somewhere in the middle, and yada yada yada. They don't think about this other model of interest-based negotiation that you mentioned. So one way to do that is to is to start asking questions about. So we can absolutely get to those things that you've talked about, but before we do that. You know, I just want to try to understand, are there other things that matter to you here? Are there things that would be valuable to you in this negotiation? And that's a way, you know, you want to be trying to think of open-ended questions that get people to say, well, what do you mean? Well, so let me give you an example of what I mean. So for us, you know, if we could actually extend the contract from three years to five years, that kind of consistency um, has value for us because we know we're going to have, a, you know, your business over that period of time. Something like that. So that sometimes it's opening questions, but it's also a willingness to, um, to put out there what are some things that you value so you demonstrate to the other what you're talking about. And, and what does that look like in a negotiation where you're coming from an interest-based perspective, you're hoping to be collaborative, and the other side is old school or Russian style where, you know, they're, they're playing hardball. Can you still continue? Is there, is there a path where you can still continue in an interest-based perspective when the other side isn't approaching it that way from the beginning? Sure, because you know, understanding your interests is all about your, your objectives in a negotiation, right? So negotiation, it's not, I mean, when I say this, sometimes people are a little surprised. Negotiation is not about reaching agreement. 
It's about meeting your objective as best as possible. And so when you're in a negotiation, if you're clear what your objectives are, which translates really into your interests, you can, no matter what the other side is doing, you can say, well, you know, I'm, I've got to achieve this and I'm open and I'm flexible on how to get there, but can you get me there? And if the answer is no, then okay, you know, we're not going to get there. Um, but you can manage the process that way by continually sort of looking back and being clear. You know, I often will write down the top of a piece of paper or the top of a computer screen what my goal is. And, and then, you know, as the conversation goes on and if they're making an offer to me, if it doesn't meet my goal, I know what the answer needs to be. So again, this is a, you know, a process in part that's really about you and your preparation. And if you know you're going in to try to deal with somebody like that, um, you know, I've had instances where I've gone in and I've said, look, you know, we can negotiate in the way that you're, you know, you're pushing, but we're not going to reach the best deal possible. And so like, I'd like to try something different, which is I'm going to share something that matters to me that you probably don't know. And my expectation is that you're going to do the same. And if they basically say, oh, well, I don't, you know, okay, go ahead. And then they decide not to share something. Then, you know, I know I need to pull back a little bit and say, look, I'm, I'm really not that interested in going down a positional road because I don't really think it's going to meet my objectives. Um, so you absolutely can use the interest-based approach. And as long as you're clear about what you're trying to achieve, then how the other approaches it, you know, is something that, you know, it matters to you, but, um, but it's something I think you can manage and you can keep nudging along from an interest-based point of view. And how important do you think it is to be conscious of managing expectations from the, from the outset? Very. Um, I think that when you, when there are expectations that are different, you know, I often will say that assumptions and perceptions are sort of a, one of the biggest killers of effective negotiation processes because we don't know we're doing it. Uh, we don't know we're making assumptions. We don't know we're making percep. You know, we don't really realize that we're bringing a perception to the table of what's going on, not the reality, quote unquote, of what's happening. Um, and so it's really important that if there's an expectation up front that's completely unrealistic, and I see this, I do a lot of work in addition to the, my teaching, I do a lot of consulting work with companies. And I would say that some of the biggest reasons why they end up conflicting with clients or those that they're working with down the road is because they fail to uh, correct or um, push back a little bit on those expectations that are unrealistic because they don't want to upset the client. And um, all that does is really set you up for failure. So it's really important because if you don't address something, then you're sort of setting a precedent. You're basically saying, um, well, okay, that frame that they've just put on this negotiation is acceptable to me because I didn't say anything about it and I didn't do anything about it. Okay, so let's talk about upsetting the client. Um, is it okay to get mad? And what do you do when people get angry or you get angry or emotions start to flare up? So emotions are an interesting question because the, the common sentiment had been for quite a while that you need to keep emotions out of negotiation. Um, part of that came from the world of economics, which is where the study of negotiation really became formalized in the 1950s. You, know, you might remember the movie A Beautiful Mind with John Nash and game theory and things like that. And, and you know, game theory and uh, all of that was based on rational actor models. Rational actor models didn't have room for emotions. Uh, and then behavioral psychologists in the 70s sort of started waving their hands and saying, this is not how people operate. Um, this isn't how this works. Like we're logical and emotional creatures. And so actually where you get into problems in negotiation is if you suppress your emotions um, and you try to push them aside because eventually they find a way back in. And, and that's why, frankly, I think you've seen in the last 10 years this sort of movement toward emotional intelligence of understanding the emotions that are coursing through you and, and bringing them to bear and, and being able to share that, hey, I'm frustrated right now. doesn't mean I'm any further from my objective or I'm you know troubled by that, but I'm needing to let you know that this process, I'm finding this process very frustrating. 
Um, so I think it's important that people actually share their emotions. And, you know, the interesting thing, too, is when I when we say the word emotion, when it comes to negotiation, uh, most people's minds immediately go to the negative. They go to frustration, confusion, anger. Right. And yet um, there, are emo- there are a lot of emotions that are positive, that drive us, that fuel us, passion, etc. Excitement, so, anticipation. Yeah. Yeah. So when when I see folks. Uh, when I see emotion being brought in, I say to myself, okay, this person clearly cares about what we're discussing. Like, that's how I translate it. Um, and I don't, you know, it, I'm, I, in, in one sense, I'll leave aside the cultural piece of this because there are a lot of cultures in the world where uh, bringing in emotions is is part of the communication process. Um and a really important part. And so, you know, we tend to equate emotionality with irrationality and people who are emotional, um, who have learned to communicate with emotion, um, there's nothing irrational about it. They're very rational. Um, they're just passionate. So I I was just going to say, you mentioned earlier that typically a negotiation is with someone who we are going to have maintain a relationship with for, uh, the future, um, and often the extended future. And I know in, in divorce mediation, until you allow the emotion to be expressed, you really are hampered from going forward. And you are also hampered in as far as the the level of, of relationship you can create for the future. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting. I, You've probably heard of George Mitchell, the former U.S. senator from Maine, who mediated between uh, in Northern Ireland and was able to reach the Good Friday Agreement. Well, George Mitchell uh, found himself in an interesting and a sort of unenviable position, which was that in Northern Ireland, people were there was a real directness and a, a desire to express emotions. So instead of quelling that, which other mediators had tried to do, he he basically created a session prior to them getting started every day where they were basically given the opportunity to vent. Um, and once they did that, uh, they were then able to process and to sort of logically kind of come around to think about certain things. So I, I think it's really important that, that emotions find their way in, uh, in, a, you know, and again, um, there are tools and techniques so that, you know, you don't want your emotions to get the better of you so that you end up, saying and doing things that are going to make the process harder, not easier, but you do want to make sure to convey them. And on the flip side, you know, um, one of the things I've learned is that you you can't try to control the other person's emotions. Um, Of course, the worst possible thing that you can say to somebody is just calm down and we'll be able to discuss this. Um, So don't do that. if You you have a propensity to do it. but on the flip side, you know, there's a really interesting tool that I've come to use. There's a woman named Rosabeth Moss Cantor who developed something called the curve of acceptance. And she was actually she developed it because she was trying to explain the process that people uh, who uh, were diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, how they processed and ultimately came around to deal with it. And uh, thankfully, you know, we're not in that situation, but it turns out that people who tip, when people hear negative news or things that they don't want to hear, they tend to go through a similar kind of process where they start with some kind of denial or anxiety um, that that can't be true. That's not possible. They didn't hear me. Um, then they might move on to some form of frustration or anger or outward anger that they express. Um, and then they move into some kind of either form of sadness or acceptance and then and then problem solving. And so for me, you know, I tend to try to watch for that and watch people sort of make their way through that cycle. And when they get to problem solving, I know that they've done what it is they need to do from an emotional point of view uh, to be able to get there. And, and I've also learned that people deal with these things very differently. And so you have to recognize that and realize that people will make their way through these processes in, you know, somebody might do it one way, they might skip right from denial to problem solving and other people, it might take a lot longer and you have to be prepared to, to let that be. 
And, and how do you know when it's time to walk away? I know William Uri uh, talks in his books about having a BATNA, best mm-hmm. alternative to a no- negotiated agreement. So that makes right. it easier to walk away if you have that. Um, so how do you create a BATNA and how do you know when it's time to use it? Sure, it's a good question. And, and I would say, first of all, that the you always want to be thinking about your BATNA um, it's part of the preparation piece of this is to think and and to determine your BATNA, it's, it's quite, it's simple in theory, it's harder in practice. So in theory, you ask yourself the question, what happens if we don't reach agreement? What do I do then? Right? And then that that will then take you down the road of, well, one alternative is that I could do this or another alternative is I could do that. And once you've thought through a few different alternatives, then you think, which of those alternatives is sort of the best of the bunch. Um, and whatever the best of the bunch is becomes your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Now, the, the fact that they use the term best doesn't always mean it's good. It just means it's the best of the ones that you have. And the important thing to realize is you always have a BATNA. Um, it may not be appealing. It may not be attractive. But, for example, if you're in a business situation and the other side is not living up to their contract, well, your BATNA might be to take them to court. Now, that's going to damage the business relationship, right? But there's something you can do. And when you negotiate, um, it's really important to understand that there is something that you can do. And, you know, it's funny because people say to me, well, did I get a good deal? You know, whenever it's whatever the negotiation is that they're addressing. And I say, well, compared to what? Because really, that's what your bat is. It's right? like the, is this good ice cream question? It's like, I don't know, do you like it? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that's an interesting one, too, because it, somebody will say, you know, did I good de- get a good deal? And I'll say, well, first of all, compared to what? And second of all, well, what were your objectives? And if you achieved your objectives, then yes, you did. You should be happy with that. And even if the next day somebody comes over and says, oh, well, you paid that for that car? Well, I paid $2,000 less last week. Um, you still got a good deal. You still met your goals. And that's the whole point of, of setting out your goals and setting out your BATNA beforehand is that you, that's what's going to determine whether you should accept something or not, right? And that's what your BATNA is really designed for. So, for example, you know, a, a simple way to explain it is to say, imagine that you're uh, unemployed and you have um, – a job interview. Well, and let's say you go to the job interview and the industry standard, you've done some research and the industry standard is 75,000 and they offer you 60. Well, um, given that you don't have any other jobs, should you accept that? I mean, your BATNA in that case is the unemployment line and continuing to look. So you can try to negotiate and say, well, you know, the industry standard is this, blah, blah, blah. But because you have a bad BATNA, you should probably accept what's in front of you. Now, if you, this is the benefit of having more than one client or more than, more than one job offer, right? Is you go to the first one, they make you an offer that becomes your BATNA so that the next, at the next interview, you now have uh, another way of doing things. And, you know, I, I often will say to folks, for example, who are unhappy at their job, well, if you're unhappy about your job and you're thinking about leaving, you don't have a good BATNA right now. So go cultivate one, um, like seek out, other job opportunities and have something in hand because then you could theoretically go back and if it say your problem at your job is money, well, you could go back and say, look, you know, I'd prefer to stay here at this job, but I've got another offer. That's a way of enhancing and creating a bat when you don't really have one or you have a poor one. So we began talking about our forefathers. Let's talk a little bit about the state of the nation and uh, our level of constructive communication on both Uh a a political level and also individually. We've stopped listening to people we disagree with um, on every level. Uh, And why do you think that is? And is is that a problem for negotiation? Um, It's a very big problem for negotiation. Uh, It's a very big problem for our country. Um, So... I, I think that we've stopped listening to each other because we actually didn't listen to each other for a very long time. Um, I think that there were certain elements of our country that were expressing needs or fears or worries that, that got buried. 
and I think, for example, you know, the phenomenon with Brexit in the UK and the phenomenon here um, with a number of people who felt left behind by the global economy and things along those lines, um, we knew it, but we didn't do anything about it. And we didn't address the underlying problem or think, what do we do with folks, for example, who might be living in the heartland um, and working in an industry that's now been subsumed by uh, a global economy? Like, what happens to those folks? Um, and the answer is that um, they, well, we didn't listen. And so there was a disgruntlement that emerged. And and I think that it's, um, I think where we are is a failure for each of us to listen to each other. And I think that social media has enhanced um, this sort of notion of, let me just sort of stay in a, in a realm where I can engage with people who think like me because it's exhausting to try to get other people to see the world that I see. And people don't want to see it. They, they don't seem to want to see it um, because in part that also goes to our identity, right? If we have to begin to change the way we think or believe, then we begin to change. Um, we have to look in the mirror and say, what is it that I really think and believe? Um, and what does that say about me? And what does that say about them and et cetera, et cetera. So I think where we are in part is a, is, is not something that's happened immediately, I think it's something that's been happening for a bit, but but it's it's more enhanced because I think um, we've we've gotten into a a place where um, you know the problem I'll just say put it this way the problem with elections is there's a winner and a loser, and when there's a loser the loser doesn't have their interests or needs met, um, and so the pendulum tends to swing in the other direction, and the next time around you know, when somebody wins, now it's their turn to sort of one up the other and get what they want. And so we have this back and forth pendulum that swings. Um, and we tend to, when it swings dramatically in one direction or the other, we tend to get more extreme views and then things swing back to a more central place. Um, one can hope that we can swing back to a little more of the middle um, so that we can get people feeling comfortable having conversations again and being able to disagree a bit. So how can we utilize successful negotiation skills to adjust our approach to communicating, communicating with people we disagree with or, or even that we don't like? You know, mm -hmm. how, how can we adopt skills and approach that make it a more successful interaction? Well, I think part of it is to ask yourself, what's the purpose of this interaction? Because too often we go into these things and in the back of our mind, um, we're thinking we're going to change this person's perspective or opinion. And, um, I'm not really sure that's, that's what the focus of our conversation should be. Um, I think right now we need to try to figure out how do I take in what it is that the other person is saying? Um, so, so I guess in part, we really need to be practicing real empathy. Um, empathy is something that gets thrown around a lot, but, um, it's really hard, especially when we disagree with people. But even if you could come away saying, you know what, I don't actually agree with what you've said, but I, at least I understand where you're coming from, that would actually be a big step in the right direction. Um, because I think right now people don't even want to entertain that, that notion. The University of Michigan has done some research, and they said there was a 40% decline in the last 30 years, uh, the greatest uh, occurring since 2000, as far as compassion and empathy goes. Um, do you think that social media is partially responsible, and how does the utilization of social media affect negotiation? I know there are a number of negotiators, mediators now, that are using um, online mediation for divorce mediation, and at first I was just like, are you kidding me? Um, mm -hmm. And yet, uh, there are some definite pros to that. There, there are, actually. And uh, if I can just do a shameless plug, I suppose. Um, I did a TEDx talk on basically called The Wired Negotiator and how using technology uh, can actually uh, 
can actually be of benefit to people in negotiation and that you need to consciously think about what's the right medium for you. So, um, but to answer your question, I mean, first of all, I think social media has become a way in which people can lash out and push out their frustrations about things in a, in a, with some anonymity or at least uh, in a way where they can send it off and they don't really have to listen to what comes back um, and touch a lot of people. Um, so I think, I think social media is, is certainly proving to be much more of a destructive force, um, despite the fact that it has the potential, you know, it's just a platform. So it has the potential for both. And, uh, you know, I, I would hope that we can, we can all see, um, going forward, how to try to use it in a positive way. Um, but in terms of technology and negotiation and things along those lines, I, you know, there are a lot of people who find negotiation and face-to-face negotiation, very anxiety producing. Um, and if that's, if you're, if you fall into that category, I mean, you have a couple of options. One is to try to work on that and to think, how do I get more comfortable with this? But another is to think, can I use email or video conferencing or um, telephone or, I mean, some people are now texting, um, <laughs> you know, to negotiate in a way that actually is much truer to myself. And I think, for example, you know, technology gives us the opportunity to step back and to think and not feel the pressure of providing an answer in the moment. Um, it also, if you're upset or frustrated by what somebody said, you know, using email gives you an opportunity to step away and think, okay, um, how do I respond constructively to this? So, <clears throat> so I actually don't, you know, I think that you want to be very conscious of the medium that you choose. Um, and you want to understand what are the potential pros and cons of each. And there, you know, those are fairly well documented, but I think that there was a sense that, you know, face to face is always better and using technology for these processes, um, is secondary. And I don't, I'm not sure that's the case anymore. Um, because I've seen how folks who would tend to accommodate, um, kind of find their voice a little bit more and are willing to be a little more assertive when they use, um, email so that they don't have to see the anger and the frustration in someone else's face, um, which causes them to give up things that are really important to them. Now, again, you have to regulate your behavior. It's not a free for all. Um, but it is something that I think is worth thinking about and trying to figure out, you know, is this medium best for me and why, and what, what problem does it solve? Um, and I will often say to folks, you know, please make sure that if you wouldn't say something to someone in person, don't say it through technology, because then you're using technology as a bit of a, a way to get around a problem and a challenge instead of, instead of addressing it. It seems, too, it can give you control over the timing, over data. Um, you're, you have better access to information in, in some right. situations. And you're, you're kind of just hanging out on the balcony. You don't have to go to the balcony. <laughs> you're just... You're just there um, right. in the sense of, of controlling the process more. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Like those dynamics, you know, you're not feeling the time pressure. You're not feeling the anger or those things that, that cause you to give up things that, that you shouldn't. So I think that's absolutely right. You know, that it gives you – and, you know, you mentioned the balcony. The balcony is a technique that, that William talks about in his book that was also written by a guy named Ron Heifetz. Um, and the balcony is a technique of, of when you're feeling pressure, when you're feeling like you're going to say or do something, you, you metaphorically step back to the balcony to uh, figure out what to do. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, email um, is a balcony in and of itself. Like you can operate on the balcony in a much more comfortable atmosphere um, so that you can manage the process effectively. And yet you are losing tone and you're losing body language, which are aspects that are critical for understanding. And we just touched on it, but maybe we can talk a little bit about the difference between um, understanding and agreeing when you're listening, right? Because listening effectively is in any communication is paramount. And so especially I think in difficult conversations or with difficult people or people we know from the get-go, maybe we, we don't think we, we have any common ground. Um, how can we be effectively listening 
and not focus on agreement, but rather understanding? And how important is it to pay attention to tone and body language? So, I mean, tone and body language absolutely matter uh, a lot and, and are significant. And, and you, know, you know, for example, using video conferencing helps with that, that you can still keep some of that um, in the picture. But in ter- I mean, in terms of listening, uh, listening is really, really difficult. It's not nearly, most of us think we're good listeners and we're really not. We actually, we're hearing, but we're not really listening to what the other is saying. And, and I think that there's two reasons for that. One is that um, there are two general sort of methods of communication. There's debate mode and dialogue mode. And when we're, when we're in debate mode, we tend to focus on the holes in the other person's argument um, and poking holes in their argument. Um, so, you know, and, uh, and the other is dialogue mode. And dialogue mode is, is where you're genuinely trying to understand where the other person is coming from. And in the positional approach to negotiation that we talked about, you know, most people are in debate mode. They're looking for those holes in the argument. They're looking for ways of finding advantage. In the interest-based way of doing things, you're much more in that uh, dialogue mode of they've got information, they have interests and things that are important to them that I need to know. And if I don't know, if I don't learn what those are, I can never quite get where I want to go. And and how uh, are your behaviors different in dialogue mode? How are your behaviors different when you're listening versus just hearing them speak? Because you're in general, you're you're first you're you're when I'm in dialogue mode, I'm writing down what people are telling me. So I'm actively listening to them and listening for what's important to them. Um, in debate mode, I'm listening for um, an inconsistency that I can point out that tries to make their argument crumble. Um, very different ways of thinking, right? Um, so so the, the debate dialogue thing is important. The other piece of this that's really important and that prevents really effective listening is back to what we were talking about before, which is um, you and yourself. Because um, we tend to, when we're listening, there's an internal conversation that we have with ourselves um, in in many instances, especially when we're in debate mode. Because when someone says something that we don't believe is true or there might be some skepticism around it or whatever, right, we'll in our mind immediately say, wait a minute, that's not right. Um, how do they arrive at that conclusion? And while you're having that conversation in your head, you're no longer listening to them. And so you need a mechanism for figuring out how do I maybe flag some things that I want to explore um, or touch on in the future um, uh, without you know, losing a sense that, that there are some things that I want to make sure that we, we're on the same page and I'm correcting about. Right? So for me, it's, it's about taking notes. And um, you know, part of the reason we interrupt people is because we want to make sure to correct the record, if you will. So if I'm taking notes and really listening to somebody and they say something that I'm not sure I understand or that I might disagree with, um, I put a star next to it so that I can come back around to it and say, so I need to come back to this point that you raised. And I want to kind of dig in a little further and ask you more about that. Um, Those kinds of things really help me to make sure that I'm actually listening to what they're saying. And you know, the difference between understanding and agreement is, you know, it's fundamental because I think people are often worried that if they agree or if they understand where the other person's coming from, that will lead to them agreeing with their perspective. And they're very different from my point of view. From my, You know, it's the difference between empathy and sympathy. Empathy is understanding. Sympathy is, is really agreement. It's agreement with someone's perspective or plight uh, on something. And you know, people often throw around the notion of empathy, but Carl Rogers, the eminent psychologist, said that empathy is non-judgmentally entering someone's world. Um, that's really hard to do. It's hard enough to judgmentally enter somebody's world, especially when you're dealing with a difficult person or a challenging individual. Um, so if you can actually do that and say, if I were them, like, what would I really be dealing with? What would I be thinking about? Um, then I understand where they're coming from. It doesn't mean um, that I 
agree. It just means I, I now get where you're coming from. And, and I accept that as a perspective on all of this. And it's such an important distinction because you're not saying if I were in their shoes, how would I feel? You were, you're saying the question is, how do they feel in their shoes? Right. And you bring up such an important um, element, I think, as well, when you talk about your approach to really listening, writing down, because you got me thinking about the flip side of that coin of listening is the other party feeling heard. And I was going to check into myself. I'm like, oh, I wonder if he ever has people yell at him and say, you know, why are you writing? Like, stop and listen to me. Um, Because people have such different styles for communicating and for listening and for processing information, right? We're all different types of learners. Some are kinesthetic and some are auditory and some are visual. And that Mm -hmm. that's also an important awareness to have when you go into a negotiation is that we're all different in the way that we process information. And and, um, so I don't know if you've had anyone yell at you and say, stop writing and pay attention. Um, Um, But if you did, you know, you could clarify. um, I actually, so I've never had anybody yell at me because I do say, by the way, I'd, I'd really like to just write down what you say so I can make sure I'm clear and, and, and reflect on it. So I, uh, up front, I let people know that this is why I'm actually writing. You're, you're managing make... expectations. That's right. Exactly. Um, so we're, we're coming to the close. And, and at the end, I just want to say maybe like when you're doing a training, what would you say are the three most important takeaways that you want participants to walk away with? What, what are those three tools that would be the most important they have in their toolbox? So the first one actually has to do with their mindset. Um, I, I really want them to walk away realizing that negotiation is much broader, much different, and much more applicable than they realize. Um, because people usually come with a very narrow view of things. Um, so I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that I want them to understand how important the the element of themselves are in this process that, you know, I could teach you lots of techniques and skills, um, to use with people, but you'll never be an effective negotiator unless you're really willing to recognize the things that are going on within you and the biases and the other kinds of things that, that impact your thinking. Um, and then I think, you know, I think the other piece is, is really to try to get people's head around the notion that, you know, the other negotiator is not your adversary or your enemy. Um, you've got to find a way to work with them. And so you have to see them in some way, shape, or form as a partner. It doesn't mean that you need to be best friends. Um, in fact, we negotiate with lots of people who we don't really want to negotiate with. But we do it because we have a purpose in mind. We have a goal that we're trying to achieve. And so we need to recognize that we need the other to get where we want to go. And if people, because, you know, I've had people say to me, well, that's your problem. When you figure it out, let me know. And I, I sort of chuckle a little bit and I say, listen, you know, if I don't get what I want here, neither are you. So is it my problem or is it our problem? And I think that it's that emphasizing of, hey, you know, as much as you'd like to think that we're not in this together, if that suits your narrative, we actually are. And that's the challenge. You know, the challenge in negotiation is, for the most part, people need each other. There's a reason they're sitting with each other because it would be of benefit to find a way forward. And that's why you're actually there. And um, so I think those three things, I mean, there's lots of others, but I would think those, if people could leave with those three elements, uh, they'd be a lot further down the road of effective negotiation than, than perhaps they were when they started. And where can people go to find out more about the work you're doing at the Harvard Negotiation Project, um, the Abraham Project, and the other um, things you're working on, and if they want to find out more about your trainings or negotiation? Sure. So they can go to uh, www.pon.harvard.edu. So for program on negotiation.harvard.edu. For more on the work that we're doing at Harvard, um, the Abraham Path Project that you talked about and other um, great stuff that the program on negotiation puts out a tremendous amount of valuable information on negotiation. And there's free newsletters and things like that that folks can sign up for. Um, If they're interested in possible training, um, they can just go to my website, which is um, joshua n, as in noahweiss.com.
and have all my stuff there uh, where they can get in touch with me, et cetera. And we, we mentioned at the beginning of the show that negotiating is something we do every day, and we do it from the time we can speak, and that we aren't being taught uh, formally how to do it. Uh, you're rectifying that problem because you've also got some children's books out there, Bullied No More, um, Trouble at the Watering Hole, with right. the continuing adventures of Chicky and Emo. Right, right, yeah. So we've actually, my colleague and I, uh, Greg Relier, uh, and I have written a, a series of children's books. The third one is actually coming out next week. Uh, it's called Phony Friends Besties Again. And it's actually about a, a social media conflict between Emo and Chicky. To, to the point of uh, the first two books, they're sort of the heroes that help resolve conflict and, and, and help their friend who's being bullied. And in this instance, Chicky and Emo confront a conflict between the two of them related to social media. And they... They have to work it through, and uh, I won't tell you what happens, but um, <laughs> but it's really gauged on uh, you know focused on six to ten year olds and helping them through the you know sort of brings us back full circle to the importance of story, you know to to root it within the story skills and abilities that are important for dealing with conflict and negotiation, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it, and I one of my favorite things to do is to go to schools and read it to different grades and, and have them play out the characters oh, and awesome. things like that. So it's, it's great. And, and I hope kids will embrace it um, in the way that, that we intend. I'm sure they will. Well, thank you, Joshua, so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Joshua. Okay. Take You're care. Doing great work. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye.